You are about to hear a conversation with three Hoffman graduates who initially came together at the Hoffman Virtual Conference by sitting on a panel called Indigenous Voices, Answering the Call to Mend Our World. Today's podcast with Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay, Dr. Anita Sanchez, and Tim Harjo is filled with profound wisdom. I'm deeply moved by their shared belief that separation is an illusion, that we are never alone, that we just need to remember who we are, and that our modern lives are in need of Indigenous wisdom. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and I'm going to leave you with this beautiful quote from Dr. Anita Sanchez. Listen with soft ears and expanded heart. Enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. Welcome to the show, Dr. Anita, Dr. Elizabeth, and Tim. I'm so happy you're here with us today. I want to start by just having you each introduce yourselves, your names, or however it feels right to introduce yourselves, where you are in the world. And then let's talk about the process. When did you do the process? And what was it that brought you to the process? In other words, what about the Hoffman process spoke to you in that moment in time? So we'll start with Anita. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm Dr. Anita Sanchez. I'm a Nahua, which many know as Aztec and Mexican-American. I'm coming to you from Boulder, Colorado, which the first peoples are the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, and they are still here. And uh, I'm just really grateful to them and to all my relatives here for the incredible connection uh, to Mother Earth and to them that I have here. I'm a um, consultant, trainer, speaker, coach, and author. Um, my book is The Four Sacred Gifts, Indigenous Wisdom for Modern Times. And I've worked, my passion is weaving indigenous wisdom and the latest science in working with people, leaders, which is everyone, whether it's in a corporate setting or in a community, global organizations. So I feel just really grateful to be here and to speak of the Hoffman process, which I took in the spring of 2018. And it was what called me was my book became an international bestseller very quickly, an award winner. And um, I think it was a little ahead of me. I was quite vulnerable and uh, sharing because I wanted to be of best service in to everyone, to anyone who was picking it up. But I realized that there was, in being so visible, when I was told about the Hoffman process, I knew that was what I needed to do. I needed to go so that I could be even more present by doing more layers of clearing um, so that I could be about spreading, uh, being a messenger of the Eagle Hoop process, prophecy and the four gifts. Thank you, Dr. Anita. And Dr. Elizabeth. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Anita. You're always a source of such inspiration. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Elizabeth Kapu'uailani Lindsay. I am Native Hawaiian and was raised by Native elders. So all of my work is in gratitude and to the edification of all of our ancestors and the wisdom that they have held and passed on through us. I feel that all of my work is actually on the shoulders of those who have gone before me. And so I always honor them. I am an explorer and a cultural anthropologist. My work is primarily focused on 
documenting and recording the wisdom from some of the most remote cultures in the world so that their ways of knowing and being are not forgotten and that their wisdom carries on to future generations. I came to Hoffman very similarly to Anita. I became an explorer for the National Geographic in 2008 and began traveling extensively. And I was traversing a very modern world and two cultures, many of which are are quite remote and some hardly known to the modern world. And my work synthesizes both. So I honor their wisdom and I see that there's such a need in the modern world for what they know. And they also know this as well. And so the first year was challenging because I was not only traversing these remote cultures and modernity, but also the interior of my life was being stretched and humbled in such a way that I knew that I had to come home to my center. Not only did it require that I become still again and and pause my traveling, but that I turn inward and listen deeply. And when I'd heard about the Hoffman Institute, I knew that this was a process that I needed to go to to and through in order to better serve those who I have committed my life to and also to be far more cognizant and and mindful in everything that I do. And and Hoffman certainly proved to be that. Are there are there specific moments that you remember that did exactly that, that helped you come home to your center, that helped you be more cognizant and mindful? Yes, there were several, um, specifically with our teacher uh, when we go through that process. I also spent a lot of the time while I was at Hoffman walking up to the trees and spending time you know, with, with nature prior to our work during the day and where I could intermittently through the day. Our word for, the Hawaiian word for tree is also the Hawaiian word for teacher. So I knew that we were in fact surrounded by teachers, both in, you know, our processes as well as, as out in the forest. Wow. The Hawaiian word for tree is the same word for teacher. Yes. And also the same word for source. Kumu is the Hawaiian word, and it means teacher, source, and tree. Wow, that's beautiful. You know, we've moved um, from White Sulphur Springs after it it burned, and the new site, it's so many beautiful trees, so many rolling hills. It's a completely different landscape. We were once in a valley, we're now on these rolling hills, but... um, I would love to see you visit, to have you visit and see what, what it feels like to be there among all the trees. Oh, I would love to someday. I'll look forward to it. Beautiful. Thank you, Elizabeth. And uh, Tim. Thank you, Sharon and, and my esteemed panel for allowing me to be on this panel today to talk about such a wonderful and important part of my life that I've been able to experience and that we're talking about the Hoffman process. And uh, I serve right now as the general manager for KMQ Television here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I've also worked as a lawyer for many years doing Indian law, but also did a lot of entertainment law work. And uh, throughout those years, I've done a lot of work with tribal governments, tribal clients, Native American clients. Throughout all of that, uh, over the last 20 years, I've done a lot of work with community groups and bringing kind of a message about uh, the Hoffman Institute's the process and uh, how important it is to our daily lives, but also our connections to each other and our Mother Earth. I first did the process in 2006. It was late winter, early spring, and uh, I did that with the inaugural group of uh, graduate students at Harvard University at the John F. Kennedy School of Government through the Center for Public Leadership. And that inaugural group, it was composed of graduate students from all over the world. And uh, it was such an amazing experience. And when I first heard about 
the uh, upcoming event. Uh, very curious about what it was, maybe what it wasn't, and knew for me that I had needed to make changes in my life and challenges that I was having on a personal level and understood that, but didn't really understood or understand how the tools or what tools could be utilized or needed uh, to help make that change happen. And so because of that curiosity, looking for that, it led me to want to apply for, and I think I had to write an essay for that and was accepted. And, and it really was the most important thing I ever did during my time at Harvard and even in my whole life. And so it's helped me in so many ways, but most of all, the ability to, to kind of connect and, and feel and, and see and understand how all of us are part of this, what I call is this network of light and how we, when we connect to that, that being present and mindful of, of our place in the, in, the, in the world, in the universe, it helps me see that and feel that. And, and it, it keeps me humble and peaceful. And I think that's been the biggest kind of part of what the process has done for me, in addition to all of the other tools and uh, the framework that has provided for me to live my daily life, but also help or at least try to um, offer some of those uh, teachings with others, including my family. And overall, it's just been one great day after another, continuously since that time. And I've been so lucky and, uh, and appreciative of having been part of that. What strikes me in, in all of your sharing, all three of you, is that all three of you are out in the world doing powerful, important work. And you also value your inner work and made that a priority. That's a thread that I felt. And Anita, I want to go back to you and, and ask you a little more. You said you had been in this moment in your life where suddenly you were more visible and you wanted to make sure that you're present. How did Hoffman, how did you being at the Hoffman process um, play a role in you being able to increase your presence? Well, you know, out in the mainstream, I would say mostly people talk about human doings. You know, you want something to change. You want it, your messages to come forward, which mine are indigenous elders' messages from all over the world. Uh, so it's when that doesn't work, then do something else, do something else. However, as indigenous people, we often talk amongst ourselves that we're human beings not doing. So I already had many years of the work in various sacred ceremony and being in community However, what I realize is that sort of what Elizabeth's talking to, I've always been, um, it's one world. <laughs> I used to talk about having a foot in different canoes, uh, but that's ridiculous. It, that's part of the illusion. That's part of the, the non-truth in that we are all intimately interconnected. What Hoffman did for me is that it took another layer off because I truly, from my early traumas, of um, nine years of childhood sexual abuse and then followed by the murder of my father, which was race-related. It was due to him having dark skin. He was, con anyway, I won't go into the detail of that. I'd done lots and lots of work. What I got at Hoffman, that kind of blew my mind. I just have to share this because you, people's uh, privacy, even though you're working in community, is respected so we don't share uh, a lot about ourselves, just our first name, not what we do or anything. But at the first session, uh, before we even started, the room had 40 people in a circle. And I remember looking at everyone. I thought, this is my community. I'm an extrovert. I'm not going to stay quiet. So I shouted out. I said, hello, how many of you are willing to share? If you want to, I invite you. Uh, I think there were 48 or 49 uh, dysfunctional arenas that we could work on. I checked all of them but one because I wasn't adopted. So I did my kind of loud self. And everyone just sort of looked at me. And what I realized in that moment already, that it was a safe space. I mean, it could have gone some other way, but I could see people going, oh, my gosh, no. And then other people slowly start saying, no, no, no. But it allowed me to believe that that's okay. But what I realized in going through uh, the different practices, and then the alone time, 
away from computers and everything is that indeed I was really grateful for all the work that I'd done and the help from all the ancestors and elders and communities and nature. However, what I didn't connect was that much of still what I was doing was in opposition to I didn't want to experience or be part of causing harm or trauma like I experienced. And that I realized that was another, that was energy that if I couldn't do another level of forgiveness, another level of healing, another level of understanding unity and hope, that I could then become more present. And indeed, that's the case. The, the case. I won't say I've arrived as a human being and continually working on the inner, but it did huge leap, huge leap in terms of going forward. And there wasn't one activity, the two that Elizabeth talked about were powerful, absolutely powerful. Here I want to say the other thing that made me present is, I know at the beginning they talk about asking you to not participate in things that you might use as a crutch. And so a lot of people said, okay, yeah, I won't do yoga. I won't do all different kinds of things. And I remember raising my hand and saying, there's some things that's not like something that's added to me. It's a part of me. The earth is part of me. My ancestors are part of me. So I just want to check if that's okay. I can be, stay connected to that because if you're asking me not, it's not about a belief system. It would be like you telling me to put my spinal cord outside the room and continue to participate. The way it was held was like, absolutely, we want you here. And that, you know, is so, so supportive, which was important for me being Indigenous that having messages of be careful because, you know, there's cults and there's, you know, just being mindful, being discerning. And not that one way is the only way. There are many paths for healing and wholeness. But I'll just tell you all the way through, there was that kind of grace and space held to do the deeper and deepest and deepest level of work as far as one wanted to, to go. This idea of staying connected to your ancestors and, and, and this idea of indigenous culture, native culture, do you see overlap in the Hoffman process with components of the indigenous culture? Yes, and there are many, and I'll leave my colleagues if they want to answer some of that too. But for one of them for me that was really important is that to be a whole human being is to have an align in alignment, the spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical. And so when the work at Hoffman, the process, I felt was always holding all of that and allowing one to see where it's in alignment, out of alignment, and support there. And I think that was one of the things, and also just very clearly that although I gave voice to it, it was really clearly already foundational to Hoffman is that, yes, nature, we are, we're nature. I don't just take care of nature. I am nature. I am the water, the elements, and all those. And yeah, so I just think there's just so many ways that Hoffman just is in alignment with the honoring of what it means to be a whole human being and what it means to be part of an interconnected whole, whether you call that planet or hoop of life, universe energy or something else. Yeah, I, I thank you. And, and I agree. I, I want to hear everybody's perspective on that because it's, it's such a fascinating thing to see the overlap. Elizabeth, do you, how, where do you see the overlap between native culture and the Hoffman process? Well, you know, there's such an integration at Hoffman in terms of the process of our our integration. I loved what Dr. Anita talks about in terms of wholeness and wholeness of being. And that certainly was my experience at Hoffman. I also feel that when we begin the process and we are we start to dissolve our identifications and we don't know people except for their names. And there's such a freedom in that. It allows us to just drop all of it and begin the exploring the, the deeper layers of who we truly are. And that is vital. And one of the things that's so important to me is that in that process of letting all of this go, we can look more gently 
at why those identifications were important or how we used them and really start to ask the questions of ourselves, you know, not believing that we were enough. And so we needed these other things to prop up, you know, how we present ourselves to the world. And so being able to be in this process that we could just look at it and hold this inquiry with such gentleness and grace and then forgiveness and of ourselves, of our relationships, of our experiences, and continued. I just felt that there was an ever-liberating experience in that entire process. And then, you know, as a result of that, our state of being changes. Our state of consciousness changes. And we see, as, as Anita was saying, the interconnectedness to all things, the illusion that we are separate from anyone or anything. It's, it's truly a remarkable process. I love hearing the process spoken of in this way. It's, it's, so, it's so true. But Tim, how about you? Where, where do you see overlaps of the process uh, with Native culture? Well, actually, I don't see any. I would go further than calling it an overlap, and I would say that it's, there's no overlap at all. It's the essence of Native culture and tradition. If you really look at when we talk about our history of tradition and culture with Native communities and on this continent and around the world, the commonalities are, have always been cultures that are built around a strong sense of presence of place and even provenance. You know, some people mistake that for a sense of pride, but I think what you're really seeing or hearing from from indigenous people who talk about, you know, who they who they are and, and where they're from and why that's important, all those senses of these emotional kind of descriptions of presence and place and provenance are all wrapped up in that balance of life that you know, we recognize our place in the earth and the cosmos and within each other. And when I say each other, I'm talking about not just all living things, but all matter on this planet. And I think the Hoffman process kind of recognizes all of that and does it in a way that allows a sense of balance and allows that presence to take place to then to start understanding how we all are part of a network of light. And once that kind of takes place within a, within a person, at, at least for me. The connections are so easy to see and feel, and it becomes kind of almost second nature, and you just carry yourself differently. You think about the world differently intellectually, but also, of course, physically. But more importantly, that spiritual component uh, kind of is then in the driver's seat and guiding that that person and that activity and, and that kind of uh, energy. And I think that's those are all indigenous kinds of concepts that are in all of us, all peoples around the world. Maybe not as strong in other communities anymore, but still is in other places. And I think that's that's where I say they're not. There's no overlap. They're they're one and the same in a lot of ways. This makes me uh, interested, Tim, in you switching from legal to media. Is is this something bringing this indigenous essence, like you said, is that what drives you to work in the space of media right now? Well, actually, I started out in media. I won a national business plan competition while I was in undergraduate and business school over 25 years ago. And uh, I had high hopes on creating, and the business plan that I won with was a, a television network for Native Americans or about Native Americans. And, uh, during that time, you know, I, a lot of folks, people I, I worked with and trusted uh, had offered or kind of said, recommended, you should go to law school and you should, you know, become a lawyer. You do great at that. And uh, I did that. But I always knew that I wasn't going to practice law. I was going to use what I learned in the legal field uh, to go back into media and kind of bring out the best parts of native culture and tradition for everyone else to share and see and understand. And hopefully in that way, the hearts and minds of mainstream audiences would begin to change more and grow more with that kind of understanding. So 
so that's kind of been the the purpose and you know i continue to do that every day and when you say the hearts and minds of mainstream would change what, what do you mean by that well i mean <laughs> if you look at the media now there's a tv channel for everyone there's something in the media that supports any and all different points of view which is all great don't get me wrong but i think in doing so we're kind of losing the commonalities some of those things that keep us together as a as people as a group as as kind of the glue of society itself and i think it allows us to go into our own homes and kind of close ourselves off from the rest of the tribe and when i say tribe i mean our communities wherever those may be where perfect strangers live next to each other and it was said that you know a few hundred years ago on average most people never went a few miles away from their village and we're talking everyone not just native people and everyone grew up knowing everybody else but you don't have that anymore you know we get our our communication our interactions with media and it's all through technology and you know we're, we're, we're growing further and further apart as human beings from each other who are literally right next to each other and i think we have to do things to kind of bring that sense of place back and that sense of community back as best we can using the media. And uh, I think it's very important. Your, your media is specific for the Native community, is that right? Not at all. Oh, okay. Tell me. Like right now we do, we have a, about 10 different network channels that we broadcast here in the local market. We just launched a new uh, statewide sports network. So we do high school, college, pro sports, many of which are live uh, broadcast. And a lot of there's a lot of native people here in the in the state, and so that's that's a really nice compliment to the broadcast work we do for just that network. But also, uh, other networks are mainstream audience related, but we like to put in other content mixed in with that that share kind of local Hispanic native kind of Southwest lifestyle and aesthetic into all that programming to get that sense of place and community. And I think uh, our viewers are appreciating that and we, we hear from them and they tell us so. And I think that's very important as we kind of, you know, work as a, as a platform to kind of hold that place together as best we can. We know it's not an end all be all. It's not the end solution to, to a lot of our social problems, of course, but I think every community that deserves to have some sort of platform that kind of helps it, maintain itself you know that glue that that kind of keeps people motivated and on the same narrative the same story you know to help kind of move things forward for that next generation i think that's what that's really what we're talking about what is our narrative what is our story how does it carry us forward in a positive way that we become role models or guides for the next generation so that they in turn know what they need to do for the next generation that comes back after or comes forward after them and so I, I think media has a big part to play in that. Sense of place and community and the glue that keeps us together. Sounds like that's the drive. This is what you want to, sh to amplify, to show through the media. Exactly. This makes me think of you, Dr. Elizabeth, being an explorer. You, you were saying that you were the first Polynesian explorer and female fellow in the history of the National Geographic Society. And I love this quote. I'm going to read it out loud, and then I'd love to have you elaborate. This came straight from your website, actually. And you say that true navigation begins in the human heart. It's the most important map of all. For centuries, cultures throughout the world have used indigenous technologies to navigate life's complexities. From navigator priests in Micronesia to mystics in India, vast sums of knowledge are available if we but recognize it. So if you would, would you, can you elaborate, tell us more, both about the vast sums of knowledge and also what do we need to do to recognize it? I'd be happy to, Sharon. This is a question that I'm often posed, so I find that more and more right now I'm, I'm working with leaders around the world and with people that are really trying very hard to navigate their lives, particularly in these complex times from where they are to where they yearn to be. And every culture has always had a blueprint knowing that our hearts are the most precise and accurate compass of all. And 
So I really have, have studied to synthesize what all of these cultures have been telling us. We know that it's there. How do we access that? And especially how do we apply it in very practical terms to the modern world? So my mentor for 10 years was a man by the name of Mao Piai Luke, who was considered the greatest wayfinder in the world. When he was on a canoe, he held the destination so clearly. I mean, he, he was able to map and guide internally. He, he knew where he was. This is a very long conversation, and I, I don't want to spend too much time with the details of it, but suffice it to say that these masters of the Pacific could sail thousands of miles on double-hulled canoes without maps or instruments. So they were guiding themselves by systems of rising and setting of stars and directional points of waves and so forth. That was the exterior of them gathering information, synthesizing it in order to gain their bearings. But the other and equally important part of this equation was how they mapped in their hearts. So they used their minds and then intersected it with their intuitive knowing. And there's something within all of us that has the capacity to access this infinite intelligence. And there are not some people who have, are blessed with these gifts. They've simply exercised those muscles and know how to apply that. You know, and, and what I see in our modern world is that people are yearning to find their way Generally, they're looking outside themselves for answers. And what all of these cultures throughout time remind us is that the answers are within ourselves. So one of the first and most important parts of this process is start to become still and turn our sights inward and then to develop that capacity to listen deeply and humbly to the guidance that comes through, because guidance will always come through. And as Rumi says, your heart knows the way, run in that direction. And in your personal experience of being an explorer, have you exercised those muscles like you say they have? And what, what was that like? I've had to. Anytime I travel, it's a very humbling experience because you never cross the same river twice. And wherever I go in the world, before I ever step onto the ground to both Tim and Anita's points, nature is who we are, that I always ask permission to be there. I never, ever travel to a land or to visit a culture without deeply first exercising great humility in terms of asking permission to be with them. And the elders of these cultures read people like weather conditions. So they read your heart very accurately, and they know your intention. I mean, it is a beautiful, and I love the fact that they do this because this is their discernment. And they must be discerning because what they have to share is the most valuable treasure that they hold, is their wisdom and ancestral knowledge. And so, yes, I've, I've always, always maintained this process of walking humbly, asking permission, listening deeply, and allowing them to guide me. So ask permission, be still, put your energy inward, listen deeply. And then what they have said is, because I will always ask them, may I share, I mean, this this is held in trust. Whenever I go into a culture, it's held in trust for their future generations. And what all of the elders have told me without exception is you must share this with the world because the world is in trouble and they need this wisdom. So I'll always ask, you know, we have these conversations and then I again ask their permission so that there is great clarity and meticulousness in sharing and elevating their voices and their, their bodies of knowledge and these ancient and ancestral technologies and systems. And yes, 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 our world needs this. I, yeah, I, don't, I, th I think you said we're in trouble, or they told you because the world is in trouble, and yes. Yes, and what I, what I always say is 
we live in a world that's bloated with data and information, but starved for wisdom. And wisdom is the thing with all three of you, Elizabeth, Anita, Tim, all three of you, this is what I'm floored by is your dedication to bring wisdom to our world, you know, modern times or however you want to call it. That's what I'm deeply moved by is this answer to the reality, to the trouble that we're in and that wisdom being indigenous. And in fact, Anita, you have a whole book and a class and, and, and a, a journey for people to stitch that together, the indigenous wisdom with today's modern world. So speaking of your book, The Four Sacred Gifts, you know, you've made it your mission. You said this in your introduction. You want to teach us the practical power of these four sacred gifts so that we can bring this wisdom into our modern living and become whole and joyful and integrated and aligned beings. Can you tell us more about that? What do you see is missing and what do you see is the wisdom that we need? Well, I, I want to say that I'm humbled being a messenger. 27 elders, indigenous elders from all over the world, Africa, Asia, all through the Americas and Europe came together in response to this vision, this prophecy. And prophecy doesn't foretell the future, but it does present the um, probable positive and negative consequences of what we choose to do. So what I love about this prophecy is what all of us have been talking about. Our medicines are all, we're always together and yet uh, connected to space and place. And that, that may sound contradictory, but, but it is the time, and it is the time as elders I speak all over the world, that all the medicines come together. And um, this prophecy is indeed that in that they came together and in ceremony in their different languages listened to spirit and gave to all humankind the four gifts. And the message from spirit was that use these four gifts and you will remember, the two-leggeds, human beings will remember how to be in harmony and balance with themselves, other two-leggeds, and all our relatives, including the earth. And so the four gifts that they gave to us are first, and I'd love for people who are listening just to um, listen with the softest part of your ears as Elizabeth and Tim have been talking about as well, and with an expanding heart. So the first gift is the power to forgive the unforgivable. And put that gift, the power to forgive the unforgivable, in the ceremonial part of your heart. And you're probably already hearing, oh, maybe images of what you've already forgiven or what might be calling you. The second gift is the gift of the power of healing. And there's so many, so many paths to healing. And yet, it's a process that we need to use every day. And so put that gift of the power of healing into the ceremonial part of your heart. And the third gift is the gift of the power of unity. And that's what we're talking about. Getting rid of that illusion of all this separateness and re-remembering. We're not bad or faulty. We just need to remember what is true. And so that gift of the power of unity, put that in the ceremonial part of your heart. And then the last gift, take a breath. I'm telling that to myself until is the gift of the power of hope, hope in action. And put that gift of the power of hope in the ceremonial part of your heart. And I think we realize on all of these, they're all intimately interconnected. And you can focus in wherever your heart calls you, but you will find they are all woven together. And that I know, so what's coming through for me right now that I just definitely want to say here in these gifts is that when I learned of them in the mid-90s, this prophecy, I was in a place of stopping doing my work of diversity, equity, inclusion, co connecting people's hearts all over the world. I just felt like it wasn't happening. More division was occurring. And, and when I heard these gifts from the elders in different traditions all over the world, it just struck me. I just knew that this was part of what I was going to be part of giving the invitation. And again, it's, it is an invitation, but I will say it's one that has transformed my life and from, has transformed people's life from the C-suite to whether you're just, you're a leader of your own life or in your family. But it all begins as Elizabeth and Tim talk about. It's, it's the inner work. 
And it is an urgent time. So it's not about we're not going to be in action. I'm speaking more to the millennials about that. But to all of us, it is about action. But the action will only cause more harm and suffering if we don't have it come from the place of harmony, of care and love for for yourself and for all our relatives that we're intimately connected to. So thank you for letting me share that. And, and because it's it's come at such a time, like many of our prophecies are unfolding all over the world, that in prayer and in talking to elders, I put a part of the process, the initial process, into an online course so that people were asking me, can, can I do this? Can I at least start on my own? I, mean, I, can't, I can't get to these different things in my time and all that. So to not have an excuse, it was always meant these gifts, as you heard them, you're probably going, but I... I already have them, and you do. Let's awaken them and put them into action. And that's what the Course helps people do, is to know how to be by looking inward. And when you're looking inward, it's not an alone thing. In looking inward, all the ancestors are there. All of nature is there. All that, you know, and your dreams and things. So I just really grateful in hearing Elizabeth and Tim speak of their past because there is it's all of this. I was saying earlier, there's such unity in our diversity. And if we could understand that we don't have to be afraid that we're going to be wiped out or something, that know that we don't want to make a sunflower a rose or a rose a sunflower. They don't look at each other and go, oh my gosh. And it's, just, it's about blooming. And that's what I feel like Hoffman Institute is not fixing, but inviting to what is already, what is sacred and just needs to be remembered with some processes and tools and the love that's being held there in that space. So many good gems in that. We're, we're getting towards the end of the interview, but I want to ask you one quick thing. Um, when you were introducing the fourth gift, so the first is forgive the unforgivable. Second was the gift of um, the, the power of healing. Third is the power of unity. And the fourth, you said, I'm going to take a deep breath. It's the gift of the power of hope. Why, why the deep breath? Well, I should have uh, slowed down. I'm just always conscious of my other panelists, and I wanted them to have time to speak too. So uh, really, we should be taking a deep breath on each one. Even just one breath allows a pause for it to go into that, to begin to be integrated. But on hope, I think part of what came through too is that so many people are sharing how hopeless they are. And when I suggest one of the ways to bring hope is to dream. Just daydream, nightdream, ask your ancestors, come. just dream, dream, dream. And they're like, I haven't dreamt. I, I, don't, I don't believe in dreams. And this is a gift. Hope is an energy source. No one can take it from us. We can give it away. You know, we can be going through hard times. And our ancestors, the reason I'm here, and if I may, the reason Elizabeth's here, and the reason Tim here, and the reason you, Sharon, are here is because we were a dream at some point. And we are here, and we're the manifestation of that. And now we get to be fully and wholly our sacredness, living that earthly to spirit. And so that we're creating that space for our next generations, going out at least seven, if not more. And so um, that's the reason for the breath. With that pause, as Elizabeth was talking about, that silence, the brain can take us into doubt so quickly. We need the brain. I'm not talking about leaving it behind, but it needs to follow the heart right now. We have so much division. Follow the heart. And these gifts, uh, the promise from Spirit is that it will help you, help all of us to remember who we are and what we are. Wow. Yes, there are so many beautiful overlaps between what all, all three of you are, are sharing. And thank you for, for breaking that down with the pause. And I was wondering if it's because specifically of hope, because it does feel like a hopeless time. And so I, I appreciate you addressing that and giving us a, a tip on daydreaming. I um, unfortunately have to start to close the interview, even though I wish we could stay for so much longer. And what I want to invite in our closing is if each one of you want to take, you know, a, a brief moment to share some wisdom, to share 
a, a nugget of wisdom for the listeners today, given this beautiful overlap of indigenous wisdom with modern times. And so I'll start with, with Tim. That is one large topic, but you know, that's, it's also kind of, I think what we've heard here today is the topic and, you know, how do we kind of navigate, work within, and maybe move the needle on how we as human beings live, love, work, and play, and everything else in between. The lessons learned, you know, it was mentioned wisdom earlier, but I think on a practical level, the lessons from the Hoffman process and indigenous communities and tradition and cultures is that kind of guiding star, that kind of guiding kind of voice, that spirit guide, as we call it in the process, I think finding connections to that really help us kind of keep us centered and keep us balanced, keep us thinking through, and even when the emotional side of things get difficult. I think that for me has been a really good stabilizing force in my life. And I think through the long term, over the last several years, many years, that stability, that kind of understanding that things will pass, I will get through this, you know, and being calm and being reasonable and communicating that in a way to my family, my friends, helps calm them. It helps them kind of understand that the, the, the highs and the lows are just that. But if we find ways to just try and stay steady and balanced. And it's very easy to say that and, and then do it. But I think just by being mindful of that going forward has always been key to kind of getting through and, and allowing yourself to use these tools we've learned at the Hoffman process and really kind of hone them, take care of them. And I find that because of that, I, I'm a better person for it. And uh, that's, that's the big message I would like to leave viewers with. Um, Elizabeth. The message that I would like to leave our audience with is this. Remember who you are. Remember the magnitude and the miracle of who you are. Anita and Tim spoke about this so eloquently. You know, my thought is this. When we know that all that exists is who we are and we are a part of that and we witness the stars that shine, would a star ever refuse to shine? The answer is no. Would a flower ever refuse to bloom? The answer is no. Why then would we hold ourselves back or create any sort of apprehension, hesitation, or limitation? The world needs millions of points of light. When Tim was talking about a network of light, the world needs this right now. So I I invite and encourage people to truly remember who they are. Thank you. Anita. I just love what both of you have said. I'm just taking that in. <laughs> I can feel it moving. That sacred motion oh, happening. You know, I, as like Tim said, there's so much, but to bring it back down to what in this moment uh, I feel coming through is that the earth has been calling us for a very long time. It has way before the pandemic. For millennia, through us as two-legged, is part of life. And so what I, what I hope people can understand, even in the most desperate situations that they might find themselves in, is that we do nothing alone. Nothing, absolutely nothing alone. So it feels really big. I found that I always start with just gratitude. So in this moment, just breath, and I can see the trees outside in Colorado in my, on my mountaintop. Grateful to the plant relatives for giving me breath, for taking that. And we have reciprocity. I give them the carbon, they give me the oxygen. For the water that I drink throughout the day, that there's a, a beauty and a joy. This is, isn't meant to all be heavy. There's such joy being alive and to be able to joke and laugh and dance and sing. So I'm, I'm wanting you to give the wisdom that I hear from many elders and being in ceremony, even in most desperate times of losing our elders, there is still this joy in knowing that we are intimately interconnected and everything is here. 
And so my hope is that they hear me and, and my brother and sister here and you as well, Sharon, as an invitation and that their heart will stay open and know that it already is. It already is there. And um, I think that's what's coming through right now is just, again, we do nothing alone. And I want to honor with that. I recently interviewed an elder from the Kalahari Desert, Lise Cooper. And after a long interview, I, I asked all the elders each time what it is that they wisdom. And she came through. And when she shared what was going on there and things happening, and yet talk about the singing and everything, reminds me of indigenous people all over where we were told there will be hard times, but remember your culture. Remember to sing. Remember your songs, your dances. Remember community. So that's that's the wisdom that already is in everyone. But reopen your heart to to remember it. Amazing. Uh, Anita, you started by saying, oh, I feel that sacred movement. And that is exactly what I feel having spent this uh, hour or so with you being so lucky and grateful to, to spend this time with you, to hear you, to have a platform for your voices. What an honor it is to be with you. And for those who are listening, they there are podcasts where each guest, Tim, Elizabeth, and Anita, are being interviewed. So you can learn a little more about their journey. Beautiful podcasts. I hope you check them out. You can just search for their names in a Hoffman podcast and you will find it. And maybe we would have links to their podcasts in the show notes. So thank you to all three of you for continuing to be a part of the Hoffman family and for allowing me to share this space with you and for putting out this collective wisdom for all of our listeners in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.